Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Um, I was suddenly struck by how late in the year it actually is while I was finishing up this episode last night and I can't quite get my head around how 2020 has felt so long and so short simultaneously. Um, I guess it's because we're on pandemic time. Who knows? So it's doing strange things to my perception of reality. But, you know, hope you're keeping well and remaining free. So I have some housekeeping to get out of the way first, and then we're going to crack on. So first, I'm in kind of an awkward spot with this episode because it's the first in a four-part series I'm calling American Tabloid. But a fortnight from now is Christmas and I'm kind of wanting to take a break until the new year. So as of the end of tonight's episode, I'm hibernating in the bunker until January the 8th, where we'll return with part two of this series and go from there. I think we all know now that the farcical release schedule of this show has become a kind of running subplot. So my hope is that you guys are going to indulge me a little bit here. So put January the 8th in your diary. Um, I'm also hoping to get on a very special guest at some point uh, next year, in early in the year as well, who has kindly offered to show me around some of the darker corners of the haunted American landscape. So keep an eye out for those episodes as well. Um, I'll be keeping an eye on the emails while I'm taking this little break. So feel free to still hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. But otherwise, after tonight, I'm off to recharge, collect some more research material, file some freedom of information requests with the federales and the spooks, and generally, I'm going to gather strength before the next push. And my hope is that this episode will be a nice way to tie off our first year and a bit in the business of pod, because uh, we're going to be bringing together almost all the themes and subjects that we've touched on before. Uh, spooks, dirty politicians, corruption, organized crime, and secret history. And we're also going to be planting some seeds and clues for where we're going to be heading in 2021. And again, a huge thanks to everyone who's been subscribing on the Patreon. That bread is already coming in handy for research material and outfit in the bunker. This series is going to cover quite a large period of time. We're going to be moving from the tenements of turn of the century New York right up to the atomic age of the late 1950s. And I think there's a lot of nuance and intrigue in this story that gets lost in some of the more schlocky true crime accounts. And while there's nothing wrong with a bit of schlock, you know, I feel like we can go a little bit deeper. So this is an account of how the mafia became a player in American affairs of state and how it became enmeshed 
in the American political system. And it's also about how the mafia became American. So it's a story about assimilation too. And as we'll see by the end of this story, it's about how decades of murder and conspiracy may have culminated in the election and then the assassination of a US president. So let's begin. Here are some headlines from the New York Times throughout March of 1891. Uh, the first one, killed his sister-in-law, the brutal crime of a revengeful Italian. Next one, they know the breed, Scranton people remember some Italian murders, and thereafter the Italians and the mafia. Then, pistols and knives drawn, a meeting of Italians dispersed by the Troy police. A review of the lynching, good advice for Italian people by an Italian journal. And finally, the New Orleans affair. And from the article itself, the records of Judge Lynch's court probably afford no parallel to this bloody business in the city of New Orleans. The lynching of a pair of murderers or horse thieves in the West or Southwest is not an event of such uncommon occurrence as to attract much attention. But the New Orleans mob shot to death 11 victims. Two or three others upon whom it sought to carry out its notions of justice could not be found. The diligence of the mob in doing its work thoroughly and to the end was not, however, its most remarkable characteristic. As was said by a New Hampshire clergyman who witnessed the sacking of the office of a Copperhead newspaper at Concord during the War of the Rebellion, it was a very respectable mob. Nor did its leaders make any concealment of their part in the undertaking. Mr. Parkinson, Mr. De Negra, and Mr. Wycliffe made short, exhortatory speeches. It was announced that Mr. Houston would be the first lieutenant. These are all well-known citizens of New Orleans. A committee had procured rifles, pistols, and shotguns. In broad daylight, the angry throng followed its leaders to the parish prison. Once inside the walls of the prison... They shot down the crouching and shrieking Italians as they would have shot down street curs. The New Orleans Cotton Exchange at once adopted resolutions declaring that the action of the mob was proper and justifiable. How many citizens of the United States believe that? There can be no doubt that the people of New Orleans believe it. The Stock Exchange and the Board of Trade adopted similar resolutions. The newspapers do not condemn the lynching and some of them approve it. Evidently, an immense preponderance of popular feeling in New Orleans sustains the lynchers. It is not probable that any of them will ever be punished. Nor can there be any doubt that the mob's victims were desperate ruffians and murderers. These sneaking and cowardly Sicilians, the descendants of bandits and assassins who have transported to this country the lawless passions, the cutthroat practices and the earthbound societies of their native country are to us 
a pest without mitigations. Our own rattlesnakes are as good citizens as they. Our own murderers are men of feeling and nobility compared to them. These men of the mafia killed Chief Hennessy in circumstances of peculiar atrocity. That assassination was a menace to the peace and good order of the city of New Orleans and to every one of its inhabitants. So went the lot of the average Italian immigrant, not just in the southern states of the US, but across the whole country in the 19th century. The lynching which this article is describing happened after a number of Italian men and one kid were arrested for the murder of police chief Hennessy in New Orleans. Now, he may have been killed by members of either the Provenzano or Mantranga families as part of a struggle for control of the docks. And although almost every news piece about Italian criminals in the States invariably mention the mafia and you know they still do up to the present day there's actually very little evidence that either of these new orleans families or any of the 11 guys murdered by the lynch mob were actually members of the mafia but anti-italian sentiment was so high at this time that the only thing the lynch mob needed was hennessy's dying description of his attackers he's supposed to have said it were dagos and that set them off of course, you know, I'm not trying to make an argument that Italians were uniquely ill-treated in the States. I mean, this happened less than 30 years after the end of the Civil War. But what it does show is how painful and difficult the slow process of assimilation could be for new arrivals from Italy. Southern Italians especially were a frequent target. Uh, they were considered a separate race to their northern countrymen. And between the 1880s and the early 1900s, southern Italians accounted for 40% of all white victims of lynch mobs in the American South. And what's also interesting about the New Orleans incident is how it shows that occasionally America's racial hierarchy can undergo this strange fluidity in who it designates as an ethnic outsider an ethnic other whenever it's deemed convenient the lynch mob wasn't just composed of white protestants uh, there were some african americans and even northern italians who took part in the massacre and the new york times was by no means unique in how its coverage helped shift the blame for what happened onto the victims and smeared all of them as being degenerate criminals from the backwaters of southern italy it's a mostly forgotten incident now, but the New Orleans lynching is one of the first times that mafia became a household term in the States. And it wouldn't be until the 1970s that some Italian-American academics would actually challenge whether you can say there was much of a mafia presence in New Orleans at the time of the, the mass murder. It was an extremely corrupt city, sure, and there were plenty of Italian criminals, but this is not the same thing as the Mafia. But just to complicate things a little bit more, one of the victims in the lynching was a guy called Joe Macheca. Macheca had actually commanded a militia for the white supremacist Crescent City White League during the Battle of Liberty Place, which was an attempted coup against the Reconstruction Era Republican state governor in New Orleans. And after the coup failed, rather than 
disbanding his Sicilian-only militia, which was called the Innocents, there's some suggestion that Macheca actually started hiring it out to local business owners and members of the southern aristocracy on a contract basis, and they'd help break strikes or collect bills and debts or recover stolen goods. And that sounds a lot like an early mafia clan, doesn't it? Like right down to its involvement in politics and an attempted revolution. But whether it actually was an embryonic version of the New Orleans mafia is very difficult to say uh, this far removed from the period. But regardless, things like the New Orleans incident stirred up a lot of nativist sentiment in the States, which is never far from the surface anyway. Um, about 4 million Italians moved to the US between 1900 and the start of World War One, and most of them came from the poor southern regions of Italy with almost a quarter of Sicily's population making the journey across the Atlantic to escape the, the poverty and the lack of opportunity at home. And while only a minority of them were actually criminals and only a minority of these guys were full-fledged mafiosi. The press found that writing smear jobs about Italians and spinning every crime committed by an Italian immigrant as somehow connected to the mafia helped to sell papers. And there's an enduring myth about how the mafia got its start in America. And it goes that supposedly the poor huddled masses yearning to breathe free were disillusioned to find the same brutal machine politics and corruption that existed in Italy also existed in America. And so as a kind of self-defense mechanism, they imported the mafia's traditions of honor and vendetta as a way to protect their communities. But the truth is there had been some mafia presence in the States for decades by the start of the 20th century, owing to improving business and trade links between Italy and the States. Wherever there was an Italian community, there would inevitably be at least some members of one of Italy's three main mafia groups lurking in the shadows, although the Andrangheta didn't travel much for its first century or so of existence. And as for the supposed disillusion that was experienced by new arrivals to America. Well, there really wasn't as much difference between Southern Italy and the States as some people like to pretend. Uh, machine politics, graft, influence peddling and corruption. These things are nothing new to the people that are arriving in New York from places like Corleone or Naples. Very few Italian immigrants were under any illusions about how things worked in their new home. And just as an aside, one thing to note is that many of the Sicilian mafiosi who traveled to America came from places on the island that were generally outside the orbit of the most lucrative underground industries in Sicily. And if you look at the makeup of the gangsters who left, very few of them came from Palermo, where business and power in the mafia is concentrated. And there are some exceptions, like people like Carlo Gambino, for instance, who uh, he was made in Palermo and he came from mafia aristocracy. Uh, but generally mobsters moved to America for the same reasons their legitimate compatriots did, which is to get a piece of the action in the land of opportunity. 
So ordinary Italian immigrants assimilated into America in all the ways you'd expect, you know, finding jobs, sending their kids to school, setting up small businesses, yada, yada, yada. But as we touched on in our episodes about the Italian mafias, the north-south divide in Italy is very real. And for many Sicilians or Neapolitans or Calabrians, they were acutely aware of how they were viewed as something slightly less than human, never mind Italian, by many people in the wealthier north. But in America, these disparate groups of Italians began to find that sense of national fellow feeling that had eluded them back home. So as they became American, these new arrivals were also beginning to think of themselves as Italian for the very first time. And the mafiosi who made the journey to the new world underwent a similar process, but they were faced with establishing new lives for themselves in a slightly more unorthodox way. Now, roughly speaking, the first Sicilian Mafia clan in New York City is generally thought to be the Morello family, which was headed by Pidu Morello. And there'd been disparate gangs of Sicilian mobsters operating out of Little Italy for decades, but the outfit that Morello established when he got to New York in 1892 was the first in the city that had the kind of hierarchical command structure that a typical Cosa Nostra clan has and they maintained close links with the organization back in Sicily and Morello was quick to establish corrupt relationships with local political bosses and police and they went to war with a rival Camorra clan around 1915 and then Morello was arrested and murdered on release. And after some additional warring within the family itself, Joe Masseria emerged as boss of the Morello family around 1928. And the early Sicilian mobsters who began to set up families in cities across the states found themselves confronted with an unfamiliar multi-ethnic underworld where territorial control was difficult to maintain and very few rival gangs respected what we might think of as the mafia brand. Uh, These were problems that were unthinkable for the parent organization back in Sicily. You had Irish and Jewish mobs who were already well-established in big cities like New York and Chicago, and they had close ties to political machines like Tammany Hall. And politicians, likewise, they might have accepted the odd bribe from a Sicilian mafiosi, but this didn't necessarily mean that the mafiosi owned them in perpetuity. Uh, Again, the brand just wasn't strong enough at this point because America already had such a long tradition of homegrown corruption. And in fact, in a strange way, the negative press coverage of Italian criminals by popularizing the mafia trademark, that acted as a kind of low-key PR campaign for the early clans and it helped them establish their reputation as serious players, uh, which is not a bad achievement for relative latecomers to the American underworld. And then even if Italians headed up powerful criminal organizations stateside, this didn't necessarily mean that they were mafiosi. Uh, Paul Kelly is a really good example of this. He ran the Five Points Gang in New York and his family was from Southern Italy, but he changed his name to Kelly from Vaccarelli to better ingratiate himself to the 
Irish politicians that dominated New York City at the turn of the century. And his crew were made up of all kinds of young gangsters and even two of the most famous mafiosi ever, uh, guys who went on to play crucial roles in the history of the American mob in the years to come, Al Capone and Lucky Luciano. They got their start in Paul Kelly's Five Points outfit working with gangsters from an array of ethnic backgrounds and they only entered the Italian-American mafia structure decades later after they'd become independently powerful. And it's worth pointing out for our purposes that guys like Luciano would learn the art of political patronage and influence peddling and how to move in the upper echelons of US society and corrupt political figures from working for people like Paul Kelly and later, and more significantly, Arnold Rothstein. Uh, he's the guy who's supposed to have fixed the 1919 World Series. I generally don't go in for the tired mustache Pete stereotype of the old school Sicilian gangsters like Masseria and Maranzano because this elides how sophisticated their operations actually were. But it is true that there was a reluctance on the part of these older bosses to deal with criminals from outside the uh, ethnically Italian underworld. Uh, but the up-and-comers like Luciano, and Frank Costello, and Carlo Gambino, Joe Bonanno, Vito Genovese, they were more pragmatic and they were more inclined to reach across ethnic lines. So things proceeded at a fairly sedate pace for a number of years. You know, you had Sicilian firms establishing their rackets throughout America, going to war or negotiating deals with rival crews, moving swag and drugs and stolen goods and you name it, back and forth along the Atlantic trade routes and gradually carving out a space for themselves in the American underworld. And at the same time, the different Sicilian, Calabrian or Neapolitan outfits started to establish business links with each other and crew together for additional protection against outside firms. It's that sense of thinking of themselves as Italians first and foremost, you know, manifesting again. And just to go off on a tangent, there's an interesting little moment in one of the, the later seasons of... Um, boardwalk empire that kind of exemplifies what i'm talking about here uh and i do have some qualms about that show's historical accuracy but um there is a funny moment between luciano and al capone where luciano is trying to sell capone on the idea of italians forming one big syndicate and there's quite a telling exchange here that accurately reflects a lot of the uh, prevailing sentiment on capone's part there's better ways to do things. Like how? Running like a business. <laughs> I already got the biggest game going. It's not all about you. It's about all of us, together. Who's us? Italians. I don't know no Italians. Nobly dance, Calabrese. What are you again? Not important. Because that's what your new boss wants. All pals. His hand in my pocket? Go anywhere in the country. New York, KC, Boston, Atlantic City. Same understanding, same rules. Nobody worries. Everybody benefits. And as the years rolled along, although Sicilians continued to 
dominate leadership roles in the developing clans, the American Mafia went from being a strictly Sicilian organization to absorbing more and more guys from the Camorra and the Andrangheta. And they were still a way off from establishing the Chicago outfit or the five families, but the seeds were there. And then the US government passed one of the most incredibly short-sighted pieces of legislation in history. passage of the Volstead Act in 1920, which was a complete ban on alcohol, one of the most lucrative industries in America was handed over to mobsters and killers overnight. Bootlegging profits during Prohibition turbocharged the American black market economy. As some estimates reckon that between two to four billion dollars wound up going directly to the organized crime groups that controlled the entire process of alcohol manufacturing from the distillery to the speakeasy between 1920 and 1933. All the money that they made had to go somewhere. So the emerging syndicates used their wealth to buy politicians and cops, invest in real estate and devise new ways to clean dirty cash first through the domestic banking system and then internationally, some of which we'll be looking at in the next part of this series. Accounts of what effect prohibition had on America's gangland sometimes overstate the case a little bit and they say that it marked the moment when crime became organized in the States and that it's also when the entire underworld became subordinate to the, the mafia. But this isn't particularly true. Uh, first, the skills that criminal gangs had developed over the decades leading up to 1920 were sophisticated enough to have already created lucrative rackets and intricate smuggling and drug trafficking routes that lasted for years. And they already had a base level of political protection owing to their work farming votes at election time for local machine bosses or with long-established kickbacks to cops and judges. And as far as the mafia dominating the Prohibition era, well, Studies say that Italian-Americans only accounted for about 25% of all the gangsters operating in New York throughout the 1920s uh, in Chicago, which we'll get to in a little while. What became known as the outfit had a core leadership of Italian-Americans, but it commanded hundreds of soldiers from outside the Italian-American criminal fraternity. And to this day, it's still a multi-ethnic syndicate, uh, albeit with a leadership circle composed of made men, um, a kind of mafia family at the top of 
the company. And the stars of the Prohibition era were also informed enough about politics and had a savvy enough grasp of the prevailing social sentiment to have begun stockpiling booze long before the Volstead Act was officially passed. And Lucky Luciano was even an early adopter of the heroin trade in North America. Uh, he was busted in 1923 for both using and dealing it. What Prohibition really did was accelerate pre-existing trends in the US underworld, including an inevitable partial merger with the legitimate state apparatus and economic system. One example of the way this happened is in the relationship that Luciano's partner, Maya Lansky, established with two men who would go on to become the heads of multi-billion dollar corporations, Louis Rosenstiel and Samuel Bronfman. Now, Bronfman was from a wealthy Russian-Canadian family, and he set up a distillery in Montreal with seed money from his family's lucrative hotel business. Canada was experimenting with prohibition itself at the time, but the geographic location of Bronfman's distillery, it placed it in a kind of semi-legal gray zone, and it also gave him good access to the northern cities in the States where there was a fortune to be made in bootlegging. Luciana, Lansky, and their associates like Mo Dalitz and Frank Costello, they bought liquor by the truckload from Bronfman. And Lansky became such good friends with him that Lansky's widow described lavish dinner and birthday parties that the two would throw for each other. Bronfman, of course, would end up creating Seagram and his children and grandchildren would become part of the US power elite connected to everything from the Inslow Affair to the Epstein Syndicate to the NXIVM pyramid scheme, sex slavery, and blackmail cult. Louis Rosenstiel brought his own extremely spooky connections to the party as well. Uh, he operated a bunch of secret distilleries and distribution warehouses in New York where a lot of the booze that Bronfman was selling to bootleggers, ended up. And again, Luciano, Lansky, and the rest did frequent business with him, and he was named by various gangsters and bosses as one of the mob's pivotal contacts with the straight world during the Kifava hearings of the 1950s and a congressional investigation in 1971. The bootleggers, in turn, were silent partners in Rosenstiel's speakeasies and front companies, and he'd actually got his start years before Prohibition working at his uncle's liquor company in Kentucky. And in 1922, and this is true according to the New York Times, while he was on holiday on the French Riviera, Lou had a chance meeting with Winston Churchill, as in the future Prime Minister of Britain, Winston Churchill. And Churchill apparently took a liking to Rosenstiel during this conversation and told him that prohibition, sooner or later, was going to end up getting repealed and advised him to begin investing in the distilleries which had been shuttered to get ahead of his competitors. Rosenstiel ended up making a killing from the investment and the way that he financed the deal was with a loan from Lehman Brothers, who you might remember from such classics as the Lehman Brothers Collapse and the Great Recession. So imagine this to the power of 10, right across the country with bootleggers and mobsters establishing business relationships with 
God knows how many CEOs, governors, congressmen, and senators. And then, of course, there are the rumors about all Joe Kennedy Sr.'s involvement in brute legging. Uh, what you'll find when you try to dig into this is a lot of hair splitting and a lot of obfuscation. Uh, historians and biographers who are quite fond of the Kennedys will define a bootlegger as like the hardest of hardcore mobsters, you know, some some machine gun toting psycho killer, which, I mean, of course, Joe Kennedy was not that. And David Nassau, who is a Kennedy dynasty biographer, uh, he said this, quote, bootlegging is the last thing he would do. He had other ways to make money. He knew where the line was between legality and illegality. He wasn't going to cross that line because his children, who he lived for and hoped would be presidents and senators, were already tarred with the brush of being Irish Catholic, and he wasn't going to add to that by being indicted for bootlegging. Now, forgive me for sounding cynical here, but I think that a man who went into the movie business and had his casts and crews tied to virtual slave contracts, a guy who would bring his mistress on holiday with his wife, who made his staff source women for him, who had his own daughter lobotomized because she had depression and suffered from seizures, who played fast and loose with the stock market and profited from the crash of 29 and the immiseration of millions of people, who was sympathetic to the Nazis and told anybody who'd listened that the Jews brought the Holocaust on themselves. Well, I think it would be pretty fucking naive to believe that he somehow had qualms about running a little bit of booze here and there because it might stop his kid becoming president someday. He was a ruthlessly ambitious businessman from Boston, a place where machine politics and dealing with gangsters and social climbing were the order of the day. And even if he wasn't personally running Rome over the border from Canada, I'm willing to put money on him at least being some kind of silent investor in booze shipments from overseas or the distilleries in America, much, much like Rosenstiel, really. And there are very few American political figures from the first half of the 20th century who weren't connected to organized crime in some way. And I have no reason to believe that Joe Kennedy was somehow the, the great exception to this. And much like Rosenstiel again, Kennedy invested in a lot of shuttered distilleries during Prohibition in anticipation of its eventual repeal. And there's no way that he wasn't using them throughout the 20s anyway, for me. With his wealth and influence, what the fuck did he have to lose? And then, of course, there's the fact that Al Capone's piano tuner told many, many people that Joe and Al were business partners in a number of Chicago speakeasies and bootlegging enterprises, and that he saw them meeting in Al's house more than once. And other outfit guys who flipped have said that it was well known even in the 20s that Joe was a silent partner in the outfit's bootlegging operation. And on top of this, we also have to ask how seriously many figures in American politics even took prohibition. The liquor cabinet in the White House remained fully stocked throughout the 20s. Warren Harding voted for prohibition when he was a senator, but Alice Roosevelt Longworth, the 
the writer and socialite. She described her visit with him after he became president like this. The violation of the 18th Amendment was a matter of course in Washington. It was rather shocking to see the way President Harding disregarded the Constitution he was sworn to uphold. One evening, a friend of the Hardings asked me if I would like to go up to the study. No rumour could have exceeded the reality. Trays with bottles containing every imaginable whiskey stood about. And this held true for Harding's predecessor, Woodrow Wilson, and his successors, um, Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. And the prohibition agents who were tasked with busting up speakeasies and raiding illegal distilleries were riddled with graft and hopelessly outmatched. Take a friend's advice, drinking in a cellar isn't nice. Anybody who has got the price should be a Cuban. Have you been longing for the smile that you haven't had for quite a while? If you have, then follow me and I'll show the way. Come on along to Cuba. I don't think it's especially worthwhile getting into all the ins and outs of the shifting gangland allegiances that happened during the 20s, all the wars and murders and whatnot. But suffice to say that the gangsters and bootleggers were killing each other constantly while local political institutions were completely overrun by corruption. I do think, though, that it might be profitable to compare and contrast Al Capone's adventures in Chicago and the rise and rise of Salvatore Luciano and Maya Lansky. Capone was brought to Chicago from Brooklyn by his boss, Johnny Torrio, as muscle. And Chicago was kind of like a new Wild West at this point. And Torrio's operation was one of the most insanely profitable in the U.S. underworld. It was bringing in around $75 million a year from bootlegging, protection rackets, gambling, and prostitution. And in today's money, that's about $3 million shy of a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. And after he was ambushed and nearly killed by a rival firm, Torrio decided it was time to cut out. So he handed over control of the outfit to Capone. Now, Al wasn't exactly the criminal CEO that most movie depictions of him tried to portray him as. Uh, he preferred to swing a hammer. And to him, more or less everything was a nail. Uh, bombing speakeasies that refused to buy booze from the outfit is supposed to have killed about 100 to 130 people alone through the 20s. But what the outfit was good at was buying political protection. Uh, when Capone moved his headquarters to Cicero on the outskirts of Chicago, he used violence and bribery to gain control of the town council. And after this, the outfit helped William Thompson, who was a Republican machine boss, become mayor of Chicago with a $250,000 campaign contribution and tactical use of violence against his political rivals and their supporters. Now, during the 1928 campaign season, primary campaign season, the Republican machine split into two factions. One was led by Thompson and the other was led by a guy called Charles Deenan, uh, Charles Deneen, even. Um, 
Capone's crew carried out 60 bombings and killed two Republican politicians in an attempt to swing it in favor of Thompson's preferred candidate, Frank Smith, but they lost out to Deneen in the end. Uh, the violence was becoming harder and harder for the outfit's political connections to stomach, and the primary ended up becoming known as the Pineapple Primary because of the number of grenades that were detonated during the campaign. Uh, pineapple is a, a nickname for a hand grenade outbursts like the saint valentine's day massacre also put a dent in capone's public image and his coke addiction was leading him to make worse and worse decisions and he was finally convicted of five counts of tax evasion and sent down in 1931 with control of the outfit passing to his number two frank nitty who recognized the need to kind of submerge the crew's operations and take it out of the headlines. Now compare this with Majolansky and Lucky Luciano. They'd been friends and partners since their teenage years with Luciano, the slightly flashier, more hot-headed one, and Lansky, the more strategic and thoughtful end. Now because Lansky was Jewish, he could never be a made guy in the mafia, but his business acumen and his ability to make money and find new markets made him invaluable to the boys. Lansky and Luciano both recognized that Capone's outfit, while incredibly profitable, attracted way too much attention to ever really be a long-term proposition, at least as it was under Al Capone. So instead, they took Arnold Rothstein's lessons to heart uh, knowing that finesse and politicking were better for business than bombings and murders. But it's not that they shrunk from that kind of work. They were just more adept in its application. And one of their more forward-thinking moves in the 1920s, beyond getting involved in the heroin trade, was to look beyond Canada and the US to Cuba as a kind of staging post for their bootlegging operations. And not only was the government of uh, Gerardo Macad willing to look the other way for the right price, but by setting up a smuggling route on the island, this meant that the mob could make Cuba another outpost by setting up casinos and heroin trafficking routes. In 1929, Lansky and Luciano organized the Atlantic City Conference where the top bosses of all the different syndicates met to discuss the future. The whole event was laid on by a guy called Nucky Thompson, who was like the boss of Atlantic City. And the guests included luminaries like Carlo Gambino, Santo Traficante, Oni Madden, Waxy Gordon, you name it, all the stars all the people that we know so well these days. Uh, it was agreed that the kind of bloodletting and murder that had defined the 20s was unsustainable and spheres of influence were hashed out across the states. And the idea was that any beef that developed between different crews could be brought to the main organization and hashed out there. And this was essentially the beginning of what the tabloids came to call the National Crime Syndicate. Although this is usually confused with the Mafia, it should be said here that they are very distinct entities. So there is one other item of business we have to deal with, which is the uh, Castella Marisi War that broke out between 1930 and 1931. So to try and simplify things as much as possible, um, 
this was a conflict within the mafia that broke out in February of 1930 after a guy called Don Vito Caschio Ferrero, who was a powerful mafiosi operating mainly in Sicily, sent Salvatore Maranzano to the States to take control of the American mafia away from Joe Masseria. Now, both Masseria and Maranzano were old-school Sicilian mobsters, and on one level, the war was a simple power struggle between the two. Most of the popular accounts of the war say that a kind of young Turk faction led by Luciano used the conflict as an opportunity to shake off the tired and suffocating chains of tradition to reconstitute the mafia in the States along more American corporate lines. And this is it's kind of a misconception, but it's understandable why it's so enduring. What was actually going on, to my mind, was an intergenerational conflict. Maseria or Masseria and Maranzano were oblivious to this. They thought it was a standard turf war and they didn't realize that they were both equally resented by the younger generation of Sicilian-American mafiosi who wanted to continue doing business without the incessant gang wars interrupting the, the flow of cash. Now, to cut a very long story short, Luciano organized uh, Masseria's murder in 1931 in a restaurant on Coney Island in Brooklyn. And this is the famous story where Luciano played cards with Masseria for a while and then excused himself to use the toilet while a hit squad came in and shot him dead. Masseria was actually Luciano's capo, so a move like this was incredibly bold. After this, uh, Maranzano staked out a claim to full control of the entire American mafia, but Luciano had him killed too. And so with these so-called mustache peats out of the picture, Luciano and Lansky imposed their vision and reorganized the structure of the American mafia. And while there were still capos and soldiers and underbosses, the great innovation that Luciano brought to the table was to take the standard meetings between bosses from the different territories in the States and formally organize these into what became known as the commission. And it was an idea that was borrowed from the Sicilian mafia, the uh, original mafia. Um, and it still exists today. And the main function of the commission would be to discuss economic opportunities and above all else, sign off on the murder of made guys. The Volstead Act was finally repealed on December the 5th, 1933, and the organized crime syndicates that evolved throughout the 1920s were well prepared to offset the losses from the end of prohibition, while their friends in big business and politics would go on to bigger and better things, even as the depression took hold and millions found themselves on the breadlines. The stage was set for the next phase of the interplay between organized crime and the American state.
in part two, we're going to meet Jay Gahoover and take a look at the National Crime Syndicate while tracking Joe Kennedy's continued rise. So I hope you will join us. But in the meantime, you can hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. That's ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. We're also on Patreon. And you can do us a favor by subscribing or giving us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. Urge on friends and loved ones and don't get captured. Cheers, guys. And I will see you next year. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love. Roly-poly, 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 he's singing.